says this about the church, beginning in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, as we look at this passage, Paul's writing to a church. It's a church like ours. He's never visited our churches. He'd never visited the church in Colossae. But he had heard from their pastor, a man named Epaphras, about that church. The church had some needs. Paul was going to address those needs. But as he begins his opening remarks to this church, he wants right off the bat to recognize them as being a healthy church. Again, a lot of ideas about what makes a healthy church. One of the things that I see about a healthy church is the healthy church always has unbelievers hanging around. There's something going on there, and people that are in the world want to know what that is, and so they kind of stick close to a, a healthy church. And eventually, those people whose lives are typically a disaster come to faith, and their lives are still a mess. They're just brand new Christians. But over a period of months and years, their lives begin to take on the, the structure of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The truth of God begins to make an, an impact over every dimension of their lives. Now, as you have a healthy church, you could have a situation like our own church. It's been here for a hundred and something years now. And so you're going to always have at a church like that a bunch of people that are in that church that reflect the glory of the gospel in their lives. They've been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years. I think of one man that uh, was in the little church down in Gulfport. You ready for this? Diamond anniversary as a member of the church. Grew up there, joined that church as a child, been a member of the church for 75 years. By the way, when Katrina came in, he and his wife and their dog pulled down the stairways to the attic and they made their way up the stairway and sat in the attic with their legs hanging down into the room and watched all the contents of their house floating left and right, up and down. But here he was. He grew up in that church. Seventy-five years. His life, his life reflected a glory of being with Christ. Now, another way of looking at this is the way it's spoken of here. These people have the three key ingredients of Christian character. They're all there. They're in balance. There's faith, not just general faith, but it's faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you see that he talks about love. The love which they have now is like that great commandment, which is to love God and then to love others as ourselves. They have love for all the saints. 
Now, in this epistle of Paul, this one in particular, as you read through it, if you just had a little pencil and you were to mark in some way, draw a circle or underline every time a word that's comprehensively used, you would find that Paul uses comprehensive terms throughout the epistle to the Colossians. It's not merely love for the saints. It's love for all the saints. You'll see he uses the word all in every throughout this this gospel presentation. It's all the blessings of God for all the people of God to make their lives able to meet every contingency throughout all of their lives. But it's love for all the saints. But then there is this kind of a quirky way he speaks of it in verse 5. In in the NIV it says it's the faith and love that springs from hope that is stored up for you in heaven. In the other translations it uses the word uh, because. These people have faith in Christ and love for all of the saints because of the hope which they have, which Paul says is laid up for them in heaven. If you farm, you get to the end of the year, and what do you do? You lay up your crops, the phrase that they use. Uh, People lay up wealth in preparation for retirement. Uh, When something's laid up for us, there's a sense that what we're speaking of is being in some way held in reserve, and yet it's certain that it's there for us at all times. And so the sense here is that they have a hope, and this hope is in heaven, and it's laid up for them, and that hope is their security. A lot of times this word hope and security are interchangeably used in the scriptures. Now, as we look at these three words, we're going to look at each one of them over the next couple of weeks, but this first time, the word hope. We need to see that this idea of hope and the way it's being used here is singularly a Christian manner of looking at life. If you have this hope, it's because you're a Christian and that it's a gift. It's it's very difficult for you to manufacture hope when there's no real reason to manufacture hope. My daughter, um, she's looking for a job. I've got a daughter that finished college. So if any of you are out there and have something for a girl that's got an English major or something like that, um, she's ready to go to work. I think just about anything you've got, she's ready. She wants to be a librarian. But I bring her up because one day, back in junior high, she was writing a a self-description of herself. And she said she was like a gray gull. Now, she went on to describe the nature of a gray gull. And then she went to describe the word gray, the color gray. 
here's what she said. Gray is the most hopeless of all colors. What's it like outside today? It's kind of gray. <laughs> Yuck. Then she said this in the next phrase. She said, but gray is the most hopeful of all colors. It hasn't made up its mind. I asked my daughter where she got that from. She says, well, it just came to me. Hope. We can be hopeful. There's a lot of people that were around that are hopeless. Sad to be called a what kind of a case? Not a good definition. These people had hope. Now, it is not anything that would be a part of being a resident of Asia Minor at this time. Not even in any way, shape, or form, religiously, could you be a person of hope if you were living in Asia Minor at the time that Paul's writing this. Two major spheres of religion. There was the Jewish worship, and there was basically what we'd call the pagan worship, the Gentile worship. Now, if you were a, just a person with religious interests, and you were not a Jew natively, and you were to look at their system here in Asia Minor, it would be something like this. It would be legalistic. It would be moral. It would be concerns with the ethical demands upon a certain society. And as you looked at the structure of this, and you were not a Jew, you would quickly come to the point of saying, there's no place for me here. There's no place. I can't fit in there. Their focus, these legalistic people, was on the demands of holiness the demands to be righteous, to be separated from all that was considered common or profane or impure in any way, shape, or form. That would be the legalistic focus. There would be laws and there would be regulations. And these were to be, in the Jewish tradition, minutely followed to keep a person from sin. You think the Ten Commandments and all the things that are in the five books of Moses are comprehensive about what it means to be living right with God or in opposition to God? The Jewish legalistic system of that day had hundreds of definitions prescribing certain behaviors and relationships of, let's just say, thou shalt not steal. And then there would be another couple hundred proscriptions. This is the way you positively keep from stealing. Negatively, this is the way you keep from stealing. And these people talked about this stuff as a way of life. There would be diets that would keep one from being polluted. By the way, almost everything I'm drawing up here comes right out of the book of Colossians. So these aren't little things that I'm just trying to pull out of the air to put on the page here. They, these things are right here in this particular letter. 
there were Sabbaths that would focus on the Jewish person's responsibility to serve God. There would be tithes that would ensure that God got his due. There would be sacrifices, those would be in Jerusalem. But these sacrifices would make one ceremonially acceptable to God. There would be gifts and offerings that this Jewish person would make in order to merit God's blessing. There would be separation and segregation that would keep non-Jews from polluting and defiling God's people. And worship was primarily for men. And as this doesn't come from the text, it comes from Jesus. Wives could be just disregarded for almost any reason at all. That was the nature of their view of divorce. In this situation, these Gentiles in Colossae look very much like the Samaritans of Palestine. And the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So if you were just a person in this part of Asia Minor, and you were religious, and you looked at the Jews, you would know there was no hope for you with them with the way they worship God. Now, the other side of this thing would be the pagan world. In this pagan world, in society, was primarily dominated by fear. Their gods were many. So every city of any size had its own temple. Many cities had multiple temples. Uh, all the craft guilds of that day, if you were a carpenter, you had your own gods. If you were a brick mason, they had their own gods. If you were in uh, livestock or if you were in agriculture, every one of these things had its own gods. There were gods for everything. Remember when Paul went to Mars Hill? Remember? He found an altar there amongst many altars. Remember what that altar was for? They didn't want to leave anybody out. They didn't want to miss anything because there were consequences. There were consequences in not giving these pagan gods their due. There were gods of war. We think of Thor. There were gods of revenge. There were gods of anger. There were gods of wrath. These gods were capricious. These gods were merciless. These gods needed to be satisfied and kept satisfied. And no one in any way, shape, or form could ever be certain of their standing with these gods. And so fear ruled the day in their worship. The worshipers began to envision things of a hierarchy. Think of like a staircase of ascending steps and that there were lower spiritual beings that needed to be worshipped. And then there were superior to them and superior to them. And all of these were seen as intermediaries 
But if these could be pleased, then they would please the gods. And so there was this effort to do that, to gain acceptance, to be accepted in the favor of God. Beyond the grave for these people, no one knew with any certainty what was going to await them. There was a world, as it was portrayed in its literature, of darkness, of demons, of terrors, of torments, and possibly of annihilation. You remember what Paul wrote to Christians who had lost loved ones in their grieving? He said, grieve for the loss of your loved ones that you've lost in Christ, but don't grieve as those who have no hope. There's no hope. So that's, that's the kind of the situation that we're looking at here. For these people in Asia Minor, it was this legalistic system that it was just virtually impossible to break into, and it was so, it was so unwieldy it would be impossible to really understand. And then there was the, the, the Jewish, or rather the, the polytheism that was a part of that culture. It was a hopeless world that Paul came to. And Paul came into that area, Asia Minor, and he preached something that is called a gospel. And it was a gospel of hope. And that's the thing that you see here. When these people, as it says here in verses 4 and 5, understood that there was a hope and that it was laid up for them in heaven, it caused them to rejoice in such a way that they grew more in their faith and they grew more in their love for other people. Hope permeates everything in everybody when it is legitimate, when it is real and substantial. When we can see the future with hope, we can deal with the present in whatever life throws at us. Now, kind of a silly though, I remember the last week or two when I was at Harris Island, South Carolina as a Marine recruit. And we were sitting there and we had been through, I don't know, eight, nine weeks of basic training. And it was only a week left. And the standing joke was we could do the next week standing on our head. Because we had the hope. <laughs> we were getting out of Paris Island and we were going someplace else. The bad times were almost over. If we know about hope and know Christ as our hope, we can move through life. Now, a lot of what I'm using for an outline comes from a little book by William Barclay now called More New Testament Words. And if we keep that copy of that down in our... Uh, our, our library, unfortunately, I have it checked out for the next week or two. But it's a great book. Here's the outline that William Barclay makes in that book about a Christian's hope. I'm borrowing his outline 
but I'm trying to show that all of the content of that outline can be found in this book of Colossians. That's why these people's hope is so substantial. First of all, it's a hope in the resurrection of believers. You see that in chapter 1, verse 4, when it says that these people's hope was laid up for them in heaven. They knew that their life was not going to come to anything of a bad end or annihilation, but that their life would be restored. In the 22nd verse of this chapter, the promise that Paul gives them is that when that resurrection happens, they're going to be presented to God in this manner. Now think of yourself this way. I look at the mirror, and it's hard for me to think this way about John, that I'm going to be holy, that I'm going to be blameless, that I am going to be beyond reproach. Now that is a pretty amazing self-definition. But this is what Paul's telling these people as the nature of his resurrection. It's just not that they're going to be raised and given a new life, but they are going to be given a quality of life that is absolutely morally pure. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul can say of this that it's of a nature that they're going to be made alive together with Christ, having all of our transgressions forgiven us. All of them. That's an amazing thing. If you think about people that you and I know, that I refer to repeatedly, who are constantly going through life with a monkey on their back, they did something. Maybe it was something they did towards their parents. Maybe it was something that they did with somebody that they were dating in high school. Maybe it was something they did towards somebody they were employed by. But they've done something that is so bad that they carry the burden of it. And a Christian's hope is to realize that we are forgiven and that these things are totally put away. They're gone. We need that. That's exactly right. But this is the Christian's hope. Now, it's secure. It's not that it's a maybe. It's secure. It's laid up for us in heaven. Now, he talks about the hope of the glory of God in chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Think of it like this. What does it mean to have a Christian hope? When Christ, who is our life jointly as Christians, he is our life. When he is revealed at the end of time, when that happens, we are going to be revealed with him in glory. Revealed with him. Whatever his glory is, that's the glory that we're going to, in some way, participate in and share. One of the old PCA ministers, um, still living in North Georgia, I got him one time, just one time, to tell me about his experience in World War II. And I've tried ever since to get him to tell the story again. He's going to tell me about Jesus, 
but he's not going to tell me about his story nor will Tish. But it's so good. Here's what he said. He said, John, I'm probably the only man you'll ever meet in your life that was marched in the three great parades of Paris. I said, what? He said, I marched in the three great parades of Paris. He said, when Paris was being liberated and the fighting with the Germans was moving one block at a time through the city streets of Paris, our division marched in. And as we marched through the parts of the city that were liberated, the Parisians were coming out and giving us cheese and giving us wine and hugging us and kissing us. And it was just like a block party. And as we moved the Germans from one block out of the way and out of the city, the party progressed until they were gone. He said, two days later, I was still in Paris, and they brought the government from England into Paris, and they had a parade. And so our division marched in the parade. He said, at the end of the war, what ended up happening is I got wounded. And I was in Paris recuperating when the war ended. And I marched in the parade at the end of the war. In all of these things, this man was caught up in the glory. And that's what I want you to see. What is our hope? It's not that merely we're going to be brought back to physical life, but we're going to share in the ultimate victory and glory of Christ our Savior. That's what he's talking about. Now, the other thing that it says here is in the present. The hope that we have in the present is that God is supplying. God's supplying all the time, never not supplying, always supplying. And so in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, again, he's saying that our sins have been forgiven. Having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us that was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, the idea there is this whole sense of Jewish legalism, that there is these demands that the law makes that we must do this, or we're condemned, or we must keep from doing something else. And if we don't keep ourselves from doing those things, then we're condemned. Now, the language that we're being told here is, that Christ in his victory on the cross has taken the condemnation away from us. Are we going to fail? Yes. Is it still sin? Yes. But is there this condemnation of the law? No. We are never to see ourselves in that kind of condemnation. That's an enormous supply that we receive, and we receive it all the time. God's promise is to fill us with the knowledge of his will. You see this in chapter 1, verse 9. The prayer Paul makes is that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom. Hear that word again? All spiritual wisdom and understanding. The language is like the language of the table with children at the table. 
And if you're anything like me as a child, I always wanted to see if I couldn't just get a little more milk in the glass. You know that child who's got that glass and it's kind of like this. And you see, well, I just want a little more milk in there. You need a little more milk in there, and now it's kind of flat. And then you, ah, you know, I just put a little more milk in there. And pretty soon you've got this crown of milk that's sitting over the top of the glass. How much more milk can I get in that glass? None. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what it's like. That's what God's saying we should be praying for. That's what's promised. If you had that, wouldn't you have hope? Now, he's saying besides that, that we're given the ability to live our lives in a manner that's worthy to the Lord. Now, let's go to one more. Hope is being right with God and reconciled with God. In chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, it says we've been reconciled by Christ's blood. Uh, Peace has been made through Christ's blood. If we were at one time uh, alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, well, now through his fleshly body and death, he is created a situation in which we're to be presented before God as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. How does God look at us? As acceptable to Him as His own dear Son. What Christ has done for Himself, He has done for us. And this is the reason God can accept us in Christ. It's a hope of salvation. Look at it in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, rescued us. Now, I don't know about you, but if you want to look at a guy that needed to be rescued, you're looking at him. If people knew me in South Florida growing up, they would say, somebody needs to rescue that boy before he either kills himself or somebody else. And thankfully, the Lord rescued me. You think about your life and you go back and you begin to look at it, what it had been, and you may have had a great life, but you'll come to the point in saying, look at this thing that Christ rescued me from. Look at this he rescued me from. Christ's hope is manifested in what Christ has already done. Well, the last little touch or two I want to make here. We have the knowledge of eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. When I say eternal life, you think life that goes on forever. Okay? Yes. Let's fill that cup for a minute. Where is eternal life ultimately found? That's life that comes from God. And what's being promised to us is not merely an endless life, but a life that's life. Not endless life, but a life that's life 
God's time of life. That's eternal life. You look at this in chapter 2, and I want to close with just looking at these couple of verses. It says this, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I write to you that your hearts can be encouraged concerning this, that it may be knit together in love, attained to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. And then in 6 and 7, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him or so live in him, having been firmly rooted, letting your roots go deep down into Christ and being built up architecturally by Christ, being established in your faith, uh, and then overflowing with gratitude. Be like an angel in heaven singing God's praises. This is eternal life, to know God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now, when you have these things, you have a certainty of hope. Just dealt with a man a couple hours ago. Paid for his son. His son had a great job. Professional. He's been out of work for well over a year. Has no sense that his son is anywhere closer to getting a job now than a year ago. Not for lack of effort, just lack of opportunity. Man's not in despair for his son, but he knows what he wants the pastor to do in reference to his son. Pray for my son. This man is a man that has hope. He's not cast down. The real problem is he's not cast down. Because he knows Christ. Christ is our hope. Let's pray. Now, Father, bless us as we look week by week. Next week as we look at faith and we think of its great call upon our lives. May we live this week with hope, faith, and love. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.